Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we are going to talk about some of the broader lessons that we can draw from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the reaction of Ukraine, and also how the rest of the world is reacting to that reaction. I'm really happy to be joined by a very special guest today, Fareed Zakaria. He hosts the uh, Fareed GPS for CNN Worldwide. He's a columnist for the Washington Post, a contributing editor for The Atlantic, best-selling author. His latest book is called 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. And he's one of the smartest and most brilliant uh, commentators on a lot of the big trends which have shaped the world over the last few years. He was the first person to talk about the rise of illiberal democracy, the post-American world. And we're together uh, because we are working on a really exciting new initiative, the International Strategy Forum, which is an interdisciplinary network of, uh, of leaders from around the world. Fareed uh, set this up with Eric Schmidt from Schmidt Futures, and uh, we have been working together on the, on the European uh, leg of that and uh, bringing these leaders together to try and help make sense of some of the, the revolutions which are going through the world, the geopolitical changes and the technological changes. And it's very exciting to, to, to see them all together. So Fareed, thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure, Mark. Always a pleasure to, to talk to you. So uh, having this meeting, we're looking at some of these big changes which are going on in the world. And you've just written this fascinating book on the, well, a few months ago on, on the post-pandemic world, um, where you draw 10 kind of big lessons uh, about the, the way that the world is changing. And then shortly, a few months after, after your book came out, Russia invades Ukraine and uh, we're all trying to make sense of, of that. In Europe, where we're sitting at the moment, this is obviously something which seems to change everything. It, it marks the end of, a, of, a, of the end of history <laughs> and a period where um, Europeans had thought that geopolitics was behind them, had thought that interdependence was unproblematic, but had also thought that, that they were the kind of centre of a, of a revolution in global affairs. And I think that... The, the invasion of, of Ukraine has brought that uh, to an end. But we've both been at various international conferences over the last few months. I think we were both in, in Davos a few weeks ago. And you can see there that many other people around the world uh, are more worried about some of the things that we're doing to, to punish Russia for it than they were about the initial <laughs> invasion of Ukraine. Um, how does the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine fit into the, the world that you described in your book? Well, I think that, you know, mercifully, I tried to describe in the book uh, the kind of broader trends that were taking place within society. So, for example, you know, the acceleration of a move to a digital world, uh, the, the shift in terms of the balance between uh, living and working in separate areas. So those are largely unaffected. The geopolitical aspects of it, I touch on and I talk about the, the you know it, it seemed to me the fundamental theme of the of the uh, of that part of the book was that you have this liberal project uh, created by the Western world, the United States and and Europe after 1945, that has done some extraordinary things. You know, interstate war 
uh, is something that was incredibly frequent in the world for hundreds of years before 1945. It's vanishingly rare. And I, and, and I talk about it and I talk about how that project is under enormous stress because of the, re, the, the return of Russia and the rise of China. Now, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, puts highlights that feature uh, in a very dramatic way. I, I do think you're right when you talk about the bookends, if you will, of the world that was created in 1989. So the, the, the United States creates a new world order, for lack of a, of a better phrase, in 1945, Europe joins in and creates what we sometimes call the free world. But that world was immediately contested by the Soviet Union. And so for 45 years, it was a fractured world, half free, half unfree, or however you want to describe it. You know, that was where the term the third world comes from. Uh, first world being free, second world being communist, third world being all the rest. 80, in 1989, this blossomed to include most of the world, you know, as countries from all over the world started to become more democratic, become more open to trade, become more open to international norms. So if 1989 marked the kind of extraordinary expansion of the liberal world order, the Russian invasion of Ukraine marks the first serious dramatic challenge to it. And it is foreshadowing a future in which this liberal project is much more threatened, much more fragile, and much more contested than it's ever been. Uh, I, I think that the, you know this has happened largely because it turns out that this liberal project was not a self-sustaining one. It was built on, on an edifice of power, American power. And as American power started to wane, if you think about Iraq as delegitimizing American military power, the global financial crisis delegitimizing American uh, economic power and COVID delegitimizing America's political uh, you know, attractiveness, if you will, as a model. All of that then laid the groundwork for this extraordinary challenge from Russia, uh, eventually a longer term challenge from China. You, you know, to to close with a thought that you have often expressed um, in your uh, in your previous book about Europe running the world. It's important to remember that there is there are signs of the vitality of the liberal project as well. All this has happened because 44 million Ukrainians want to live in a liberal democratic regime that is tied to the West. Um, essentially, the Ukrainians looked at themselves and said, we want to be Poland, not Russia. Um, and that reminds us, you know, that from the bottom up, there is still a, a good deal of vitality to the liberal project. So one of the big questions which I've been grappling with is the um, part of that period which you're talking about of the post-1989 period was characterized by a kind of profound rethinking about the idea of, of sovereignty um, in an age of globalization, where in the West, we revised a lot of the rules. We said that actually you know, states were no longer completely sovereign about what happened within their borders. If they um, interfered with the human rights of their citizens, we had a responsibility to protect them, which was a, a kind of polite way of talking about a kind of right to intervene, I suppose, in, in other countries' affairs. In Europe, um, there was a whole 
revolution in, in terms of thinking about interfering in each other's affairs, um, opening people up to to surveillance, to legal challenges, to all sorts of things which curtailed the, the freedom of their, their state. And because it was a moment of, of supreme power by the West, this was an unthreatening thing because it essentially it was about a license for the West to interfere in other countries' internal affairs. What we're now seeing is some of that language and some of those post-sovereignist ideas being played back at us in ways that we find extremely uncomfortable. You know, Russia first started using the Kosovo case and, and, and the, the arguments that we made about intervening in Kosovo uh, and genocide as a justification for its annexation of, of South Ossetia and Abkhazia in 2008. And you then see kind of new perversions of it when they annex Crimea and, and now in the latest war. We've seen the Saudis using sort of similar arguments about their responsibility to protect Sunni uh, uh, people in um, in Yemen or in, in other parts of the world. The Iranians feel an obligation to protect Shia. As we move towards a sort of world where a lot of countries are thinking in civilizational terms, you're seeing a, a sort of weird postmodern mix of this human rights universalism, which the West uh, brought in, the kind of postmodern uh, universalism of the West, with pre-modern identity politics, where people are kind of using that as a, a reason to intervene in different places. And I'm sort of wondering what that does. As I think, as you say, it's partly a result of power shifting. So other people can now do the sorts of things that we thought we were doing as part of our civilization, the liberal uh, project beforehand. And it's quite a shock. We're, we're not liking it, partly because we're saying this is not the same. There's nothing... Uh, you know, there was genocide going on in Yugoslavia. That's why we intervened to, to defend these human rights. But do you think that that could lead to a rethinking of, of sovereignty and maybe a, a new embrace of, of Westphalian borders uh, in the US and in European countries? Um, it's a great question. And I think that, you know, look, some of this uh, opposition uh, to... Uh, or, or some of the employment of the rhetoric of human rights by the Russians or the or the Saudis is Jesuitical. It's just a clever legal way to couch what they're doing uh, in, in in moral terms, or as you say, to use the language of of Western resp- right right to protect or responsibility to protect uh, in order to justify what are often naked military interventions. But I think the broader point that you make is absolutely true, which is that the West became extraordinarily arrogant about the, the its ability to, uh, to if you will, rewrite these rules of the road and started to violate state sovereignty on a scale that it had not done before, and certainly not while justifying it. The United States intervened plenty of times during the Cold War, but it was done quietly, furtively, and often just, you know, the, the, with the naked guys or the the the, uh, the cloak being uh, anti-communism. You know, we did what we had to do to fight the communists, whereas now it was being presented openly as this kind of great moral triumph. And I think we made a mistake there, which is we forgot that at the end of the day, the liberal project works best when there is some recognition of the realities of power politics and some concessions to the realities of power politics. So 
If you contrast Woodrow Wilson's uh, vision of uh, world order with Franklin Roosevelt's, Wilson, after World War I, wants to create a kind of, you know, a, a kind of universalism that encompasses everybody and everything. Every every nation is equal. Uh, in the League of Nations, there was no Security Council. There were no permanent members. There were no vetoes. And the whole thing collapsed because at the end of the day, the great powers did not feel any investment in it and set about tearing it apart. Roosevelt, on the other hand, recognized that at the end of the day, if you don't have buy-in from everybody, from the most important countries in the world, the project is not going to work. And so the UN system and more broadly, the world order created after 45 gives a lot of uh, space to great powers. You know, there's the UN Security Council, obviously, which has the vetoes, but you think of the IMF and the World Bank with their weighted voting. And, you know, there, there's lots of accommodations to the realities of power politics. And I think we forgot, we lost sight of that. Uh, and so I think it's not a question of will there be a return to Westphalian? There already is, as you know. Um, and part of this is, of course, that the United States has always been very jealous about guarding its own sovereignty. Uh, and Britain has always been very jealous about guarding its own self. So it, it, be, it, it became more of a hypocrisy than, than, you know, than the world could stand. But I think more generally, there is some healthy balance between nationalism and liberal internationalism. And if you move the balance too far away from nationalism, uh, you will find yourself you know, in, in, in very fragile territory. Europe is the one exception, in a sense, where you have had genuine pooling of sovereignty. But I think it's important for Europeans to understand how um, unique, how ahistoric that, you know, there, there's this wonderful book by Asimoglu and Robinson called The Narrow Corridor, which talks about how difficult it is to create liberal democracies. You know, you need a state that is strong enough to control uh, the territory and to beat back tribalism but not so strong that it kills uh, individual liberties, rights, and, and, uh, and the like. Similarly, with, I think, liberal internationalism, there is a path here where you have to recognize the power of the state. You have to recognize that you intervene in other states very sparingly. Um, you re respect sovereignty. When there are extreme circumstances, you, 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 you do it. And hope history will, you know, you break the norm and hope that history will judge that you made the right decision. Uh, but it should be used much more sparingly than the United States certainly did in the, in the post-89 era. So you've written brilliantly for many years about globalization and all of its twists and turns. And you've been, uh, I think, somebody who, who's been relatively immune to some of the, the more kind of uh, religious thinking about globalization <laughs> since 1989. But in your book, you do say globalization is not dead. That was one of your kind of lessons. But it is changing in quite uh, interesting ways, partly as a result of the, the US-China competition, which you've also written brilliantly about. So how do you see globalization emerging? And do you think it's going to be affected in a big way by some of the, the measures which countries have taken to, to weaponize the global economy in the wake of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine? I, I think globalization is changing, as you say. And I think what we are moving into is, is not an age of deglobalization, 
but of re-globalization. What I mean by that is if you look at the numbers, uh, and that's what I really base that statement on, global trade is still going up. U.S.-China trade went up every month of Donald Donald Trump talked about decoupling the more trade there was between China. Exactly. And it, it showed you how interdependent we are because all that was happening because of, you know, it turns out the average consumer has more power than the average president in America. Uh, and when consumers decided that they were during the pandemic going to buy fewer services and more goods, it it meant trade with China went up. So people were using the gyms less and going to the gym less, but buying Pelotons and weights and, and guess where all the Pelotons and weights in the world are made, right? China. So that's, so it turns out that there's so much interconnectivity that it's very hard even for a Donald Trump to really uh, severely curtail it. But I think Russia is different. You are seeing a, a real isolation of Russia in the world economy. But again, it's re-globalization. Those, those industries, those um, associations are not going to come back to the United States or to Europe. These are high-wage countries that are mostly service economies increasingly. What is going to happen is the stuff that goes out of Russia will go to Turkey or, or it will go to uh, Malaysia or to, you know, the stuff that goes out of China will go to Vietnam or uh, Mexico or Colombia. And so what you're seeing is a new globalization that recognizes the importance of national security, of resilience, so that you don't put all your eggs in one basket, and the realities of climate change to a certain extent where you don't want to have very long supply lines, uh, which are both very expensive and very carbon uh, inefficient. So I think for all those reasons, you are seeing a kind of re-globalization, which will have a different character. And this is something we should talk about as well, which is um, for the last 30 years, economics has always trumped politics. You know, when Margaret Thatcher explaining her reforms said, there is no alternative. What she meant is if you want growth, you have to you have to agree with my free market reforms. And that's been the mantra in country after country for the last 30 years. For the last few years, what I notice is really starting most dramatically with Brexit, politics has trumped economics. When you talk to people who were honest about it, about Brexit, they would say, yeah, I recognize Britain cutting itself off from its largest market does not make a lot of economic sense, but it's important for our national sovereignty, for our dignity, for the character of, of English parliamentary democracy. That tendency has, has really become quite widespread. Made in China, made in India, by, by American, all these are examples of politics trumping economics. So if you take that seriously, what I think we're increasingly seeing is the the infrastructure of globalization being freighted with a lot of non-economic goals. So there are political ones about reclaiming control, which you talked about there. There are geopolitical ones, which is why a lot of people are talking about friendshoring and being worried about asymmetric interdependence with Russia on energy or with China on on medical supplies or uh, with uh, the US uh, on chips or, or whatever, which is, and then also, as you say, we're, we're loading up with taxonomies and things like that. We're loading up lots of climate goals onto how financial markets work and, and other kinds of things, which people don't necessarily like. And essentially, for, from a Western perspective, because we still control a lot of this infrastructure, it kind of makes sense 
that we're trying to shape a better world, a more equitable globalization, um, where we're we're trying to de-risk it because the I think the light in the room has 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 shifted and people still like the good things about globalization, but they're more aware of of the risks and the bad things. But from a non-Western perspective, things which look like global public goods are now becoming instruments of American domestic politics or geopolitics or Western geopolitics. And it's quite scary. You know, it's not just, you know, Russia being kicked off swift, but us basically loading up uh, lots of climate uh, obligations, which are seen as quite hypocritical in other parts of the world, given how uh, late we were to come to to these um, realizations about the dangers of carbon after despoiling the planet for, for centuries. Is that going to lead to a real fragmentation? Because so far, as you say, the, the decoupling has been largely rhetorical rather than actual, except in a few very limited areas where there has been real decoupling where it comes to science and technology. But do you think that if we carry on tr- seeing politics trump economics, that we could actually end up um, making the infrastructure of, of globalization very unattractive for many parts of the world that therefore want to, to hedge against it and to develop alternative structures? No, I think it's a very it's a very good point and a very real risk. Look, I think that first, the experiment we're running, politics trumping economics, is going to be a very interesting one. Um, remember, everything we are doing is structurally inflationary. Because in every case, we are saying we are not going for the lowest cost product or service. We are not sourcing from the cheapest place. We're not going for efficiency. We have these other goals. By definition, that means you're raising the price, you're raising costs. We will see whether people are as supportive of this as the politicians think they are. I have a feeling that when, you know, because it's the poor that get hurt the most by by inflation. Uh, You know, I mean, honestly, people like us who are professionals, I mean, Cost of food goes up five or seven percent. We don't honestly notice it that much. But if you're living on forty thousand dollars a year and you're feeding your family of four, you really feel it. So I have a suspicion that you're going to see a certain amount of blowback from these inflationary times. You're already seeing it in the U.S. Uh, and if it continues, which I don't see how it doesn't, because these are all structurally inflationary things. You have an interesting and complicated uh, world, but to the point you're raising, which is does it does do all these uh, these mandates uh, then make other countries, the rest, if you will, less attracted to the liberal international order? I I think yes, and I think that the re- we have to remember the point of a rules based international order is to try to find as large and inclusive a group. Uh, of of nations in the world and to agree on some core principles such as no changing of borders by force and things like that. The more you try to uh, turn it into an instrument of, you know, promoting every, every value that the West has, the more pushback you will get, you know? So I'm not one who's in favor of taking Western sexual relations and, and, and forcing other countries to do it. We have to recognize that countries are at different stages in historical development. They have different cultural values. And, you know, when one of the lessons one hopes that the United States has learned over the last 20 years is that kind of liberal imperialism, whether in Iraq or Afghanistan, 
really doesn't work. It, it provokes nationalism. It provokes a kind of intuitive opposition. Uh, and it does not allow for the process of organic historical development. So I would think that, you know, the key to making uh, successful this revamping of liberal internationalism and the liberal international order is to have as inclusive a group as you can um, and to try to limit it to the most important core principles rather than turning it into this fantasy of every, you know, if we are doing doing, uh, you know, uh, something on gender rights that everyone in the world has to do it. So if you look forward, you, and you were very, one of the very early people to, to call the beginning of the post-American world, um, and then they're now in this post-American world, various different competing models for thinking about what the future looks like, um, you know, whether it's a bipolar world and a new Cold War whether it's a more sort of uh, fragmented G zero world where there are no kind of centers of power and you kind of have a, if you kind of think about all of these different mental models, what is your kind of model for understanding what, uh, what kind of order we have, or do you think we will, we will actually have no order that it could be something which is, which is more hollowed out and more chaotic What's your sense of if we look forward 10, 20 years time, how we will come to define the, the period that we're living through at the moment? You know, Mark, I think one of the challenges here is to understand how best to uh, to predict or imagine the future. I think sometimes people think that there is a future out there that is formed and it is the job of people like you and me to figure it out and that the smart ones can actually figure it out and the, and, the, and the stupid ones don't. But there is no future out there. The future will be determined by a lot of the actions that are taken today, never more so than now. So, there, so you know, the, the future is contingent on certain, on certain events and actions. And so I, what I can say is there's certainly, broadly speaking, two scenarios that I think you can imagine. One is a world of much greater freelancing, nationalism, great power politics of the of, of the old style, and the, uh, the the erosion of this rules-based international order. That would be a kind of reversion to mean. Uh, most of human history has been like that, and this would be a you know a, 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 in in some ways a kind of cyclical return to that reality in the. The Chinese would do, do would freelance in Asia. The Russians would freelance around the, in what they call their near abroad. And we, we would, you know, the strong do what they can. The weak do what they must, suffer what they must, as Thucydides said. But I think that there is another uh, future scenario that is equally plausible. And it is that the countries that have most benefited from this rules-based international system find a way to come together because they recognize that this is not a self-sustaining project and that it requires power and it requires purpose. And in doing that, again, back to your, your book, Europe comes, comes together much more as a strategic player on the world scene. Uh, I think Russia has been a, a revolution of sorts in Europe, where Europeans have understood that security is no longer free. It has to be earned. Uh, there's more coordination in Europe than anyone would have imagined uh, six months ago. Uh, and, and so if you take the United States and Europe and a strategic and purposeful Europe, that's 50% of global GDP. You add 
Korea and Japan to it, South Korea and Japan, you're close to 60% of global GDP, 85% of global defense spending, 95% of global agenda setting power, if you think about soft power, right? Nobody really looks to China and Russia for that. So, but it has to be used, worked, uh, and, and, uh, and built, and in a more cooperative model. It can't just be the United States. Not only will the world not stand for that, but America doesn't want to play that role. That's partly what the rise of Donald Trump was, a kind of frustration with the imperial burden that the United States has taken on itself. But if we get that scenario, I mean, frankly, that is a very attractive world, a world in which there is, you know, there are uh, liberal democratic regimes uh, scattered around the world trying to help create a rule-based international system that is infused with some uh, minimum uh, degree of liberal values. Uh, And there's more buy-in, there's more more vitality to it for that reason. There will be pushback. You know, I think the mistake we made was, again, think this was all natural and self-sustaining. And and one of the reasons is, uh, you point out in your last book, this process is very revolutionary. It is very unsettling. You know, Marx uh, talks about in the Communist Manifesto, capitalism, all that is solid melts into air, you know, the ceaseless energy of capitalism. It's very uh, unsettling to most people. So we have to find a way to, uh, to slow down the machine, to keep these positive forces going, but not turn them into such an accelerated dynamic that it causes deep anxiety, deep divisions within our own societies. But if we can do all that, I feel like, you know, once one more time, the, the liberal world will have sort of muddled through and managed to to triumph. You know, if you think about it, you know, there, there were challenges from the monarchs and, the, and somehow, you know, liberal democracy emerged. There were ta- challenges from the fascists and li- liberal democracy prevailed. There were challenges from communists liberal democracy prevailed. There were challenges from Islamic uh, fundamentalists and liberal democracy prevailed. And so I don't think that it's impossible to imagine a world in which one more time with a lot of adjustments and, and courage and strength, liberal democracy wins again in the end. Well, I should probably leave it there while we're ahead with your kind of uh, Whiggish theory of history, um, seeing all of the, the these... Um, liberal truths preserved and reinvented for for another generation so maybe before we descend into into pessimism um we, we should wiggish hope i would say more than more than the, the prediction okay so it's not deterministic we got to fight for this but it's possible yeah, yeah exactly Exactly. That's a nice place to end, Fareed. Um, we've got one thing left to do on the, the podcast, which is the, the bookshelf segment. Obviously, on everyone's bookshelf, there should be not just a, a copy of, of your 10 lessons from the post-pandemic world, but also the, the, the post-American world and the rise of illiberal democracy, uh, the future of democracy, in fact, was the name of that book, wasn't it? But what is on your bookshelf at the moment, Fareed? Um, I am reading a few things that are quite uh, different. I'm reading Dominion by Tom Holland, uh, this book that is uh, really fascinating about how Christianity transformed the intellectual landscape of the world. Um, It's by a a guy who mostly wrote about uh, Roman history and then thought to himself, you know, Roman history and life seems so different 
from the world we live in now? What was the what was the transformation? Uh, and for him, it was you know he came to the view it was Christianity and does a wonderful job uh, of explaining that all. Then I am I'm reading um, Kevin Rudd's book about uh, China. Uh, Kevin Rudd, the former Australian Prime Minister, uh, about why the United States and China are not doomed to war. Um, and it's a very intelligent, uh, easy to read uh, kind of, uh, it frames the debate very well, I think. And I am rereading Middlemarch because I, I've been writing about, uh, I've been writing about the Industrial Revolution and, you know, Britain's, Britain in the 19th century. And uh, it's, I, I remembered as, as being both a joy and a completely fascinatingly intelligent novel and I'm, I've started it again, and I'm delighted to report that it is as good as I remember. Wow. Okay. Well, sounds like uh, uh, you've got very um, full bookshelves. They're all quite thick books that you're, you're working away from. <laughs> so I sometimes listen to them on, you know, on tape. I have Middlemarch and Dominion on both in hard copy and tape, and I use, I kind of alternate. Wonderful. So we'll put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. We can also put some details on the ISF, the International Security Fellowship, which we have been working with Fareed on there. And if you've enjoyed listening to us, please do head to whatever platform you've used to, to listen to us on and subscribe to the podcast. And while you're there, it would be fantastic if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating because it will help draw other people to the podcast. But for now, from Fareed Zakaria and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and the editor of this episode is Marlene Riedel. <laughs>